Welcome to this Choir Nerd podcast. I'm your host, Mark David Obenza, and I'm here with Koska, Kosta Ruslanov. There you go. Okay, a, a researcher and professional musician. Uh, Kos, Kosta has his own podcast. Can you hear me? I can hear perfectly oh, well. Oh, I need to turn this. Granted? I need to turn that off. Okay. Uh, he, he is a researcher and prof professional musician. He has his own podcast called Music Business Today which I've linked in the description. Uh, Costa, Thank thanks for being on my podcast. Uh, and for those of you tuning in, you know, I hope you will throw in a comment or a question that we can respond to throughout. And um, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, and if you do like interviews like these, I hope you will consider supporting it through my Patreon account, uh, which is also linked. And I hope you will also check out Costa's uh, uh uh, podcast and his Patreon page too, which I've also linked in the description. Um, so, Costa, first, uh, how are you doing? Is it Costa? Costa. Costa. I go by Costa. Costa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> first, uh, I guess, how are you doing in COVID and, and uh, how are you getting on with that? Well, first of all, uh, good afternoon to everybody watching us. Uh, if you're watching from across the big ocean, good evening to you as well. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks so much for having me, Mark David. It's, it's my pleasure to be to be on your show, talking about the things that we're going to be talking about. Yes, yes. Um, COVID, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting, pretty interesting time to say the least. And um, I know there's there's a lot of people hurting at the moment. Yeah, mm, a lot of people have taken a hit to their business, to their careers. No matter what you do, if you're an employee or an employer or a freelancer, like a lot of our fellow musicians, a lot of people have taken a hit and me included, probably yourself as well, and it's not pretty. Yeah. So why don't you tell people just briefly a little bit about what you do? Oh, I'd love to. It's Talking about myself happens to be my least favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm I'm a musician and a researcher. I, I, play, I play quite a few instruments. I mostly gravitate towards folk music, towards Celtic folk music, but me, me and Mark Devin have actually shared a stage playing early music. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, we did some tours and that kind of stuff. But as a researcher, really during my um, PhD program at the University of Victoria, I became really interested in economics and music and music business and entrepreneurship and how those things all connect. And I ended up doing a dissertation on... Um, sort of, I'm, I'm a Baroque specialist, but I was interested in kind of the history of government regulation and government intrusion, really, into the performing arts. Mm -hmm. Louis XIV and, you know, the decrees and kind of controlling live music and opera and all that kind of stuff. So that, that's sort of my background as a researcher. So did, you, did you do that in school? Yes, at the University of Victoria, when I did my PhD, it was in, that was, that was the area that I did it. Wow. So th that's a... Uh... What was the program officially called? Musicology. He was in the musicology department. Oh, the musicology department. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Historical musicology at the University of Victoria. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you played the you played the guitar. Yes, it was kind of my main instrument for a while. And then I picked up the lute because they kind of relate it. But the yeah. accordion was my first instrument, and then piano and organ, and it's boredom really. <laughs> so, <laughs> nothing else now. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, yeah. And so how, how many, so did you get some gigs canceled? Well, if I showed you my calendar, it will be as plain as and, and white as a, you know, snowy meadow in winter. It's nothing. <laughs> um, 
you know, I'm a, um, throughout the school year, I teach a lot, but then the summers, I mean, like most musicians, we tend to go touring and there's the summer festivals and programs and all that kind of stuff. My concert and touring schedule for the summer has been wiped out basically. Yeah. And so was that a large part of your income? No, not for the summer, but you know, it was something and yeah. it was touring. It was reconnecting with one of the festivals, the Quadra Island Festival that I, I've performed there for like eight years in a row now. And I've, you know, I've seen like the first year I did it, there was this woman that was pregnant and now the kids ate. So I've seen that kid grow up, you know, it's that kind of stuff. And you build connections with the community. And this year was going to be our 10th anniversary. That was canceled. And, you know, it's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and you have this sort of parallel life, um, looking looking at economics and and uh, how that has 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 affected music, um, and what got you interested in that specific area. Well, I think when we we've all kind of had this moment where I don't know you either you know either hit rock bottom or you read a book and kind of something goes off and you go oh oh there's something here. For me, it was, I think it was kind of halfway through my master's degree in, 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 in McGill in Montreal that I was kind of wondering about these things. I'm like, hang on a minute. Why is it that, I don't know, like a Taylor Swift can make you know millions off of one concert, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. But why is it that, that early music, the field that I was into at that time, why is it that we can barely fill a hall with like, you know, half a dozen people? And, and you know, I thought, Wow, look at the value of what we do. A Bach cantata, period instruments. Wow, I can give you a citation for every phrase that we do. Yeah. What, what gives? You know, what what causes that disparity? Yes. That's a I mean, that is really the heart of I've also been wondering this very thing, but I haven't had the capacity to really dig into it that much. And I was really attracted to your um, initial episode about supply and demand and how yeah, you know, just thinking of of it just on a basic uh, in the in that very basic way can maybe kind of open a, a an actually you know interesting and uh, meaningful conversation about the value of what we do and mm -hmm. maybe maybe for just for uh, just some basic understanding of those definitions do you want to just kind of um, kind of educate educate all of us on on supply and demand and uh, and what that means Dear, oh dear. Well, educate. I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not an economist. I'm I'm yeah. a musicologist, but I'm kind of one of those rare arts researchers that kind of dip a toe into the hard sciences. Yeah. Uh, there's there's you know there's, there's music researchers that dip into acoustics and physics and that kind of stuff. My kind of inter interdisciplinary kind of bridge that I built is with economics. So. I'm not an economist, but I have studied economics for a very long time as well as musicology. So it's sort of my understanding of things. And, and these are, you know, you take a you know, micro and macroeconomics 101 class, and this is like week one of economics, yeah. supply and demand. But we, 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 before we kind of define that, I thought we kind of get rid of the elephant in the room, which oh, like that, which I think, and you, you know, you tell me what you think if you yeah. think I'm off, but I think the elephant in a room, and I'm I'm talking from experience that in discussing these things with colleagues and musicians, there's this almost kind of sacrilegious kind of sort of air to it. Like, how dare you 
bring money and you know cold hard equations and economics into music like you can't do that it, it somehow spoils kind of the nobler holiness of music you know oh yeah no i i i feel that completely and and i know music for a lot of people even as performers is a very much like a spiritual thing for people uh and of course and there is uh, we have to also think of it if we're going to make a livelihood out of it we have to think of it in you know terms that make sense uh as a as a way to make a living in terms of money and so i'm this is that's one of the reasons why i'm super eager i was super eager to have this talk with you um yeah we'll, we'll get into it and um we never talked about timing by the way but Oh, um, we can I, go for as long as we can. We've got days on this thing. I know. That's what I was going to say. If, yeah. I, I don't know if there's a limit on this on the broadcasting software that we're using, but I've I've booked the afternoon off because I know these can be kind of complicated things, and we might veer off. Yeah. And I I welcome that. I no agenda. We're just shooting the stuff back and forth. Exactly. So, so let me kind of try to clear the the air of the elephant in the room, which is yes. how dare you bring money to music? Well, look. The, the way I think about it is, is this, this might be helpful to look at it this way. There's different levels of analysis. You can look at something. Yeah. I don't know. Look at a, a car. To a mechanic, a car is what? Well, it's something he can work on, something to be improved, something he makes money with as a mechanic. To a car dealer, a car is something else. A car is just something he sells. Mm -hmm. To a philosopher... A car is something kind of metaphysical that allows us to um, explore our natural surroundings at a speed greater than that of our own two feet. So, you know, that this different um, kind of level you could look at a car. Well, look at music. So the way I look at it, these kind of different kind of um, levels of analysis that are kind of nested within each other. If you start kind of at the very top, I suppose, you could say music is, you know, to a philosopher is something... Uh, you know, transformative and and kind of transcends time, and it's inspiring, and it's uh, you know, it's symbolic, it's metaphorical, it's it's all of those things. Mm -hmm. to, to a musician, to me and you, <clears throat> um, to a musician, it's it's our tool of the trade. It's it's what we what we deliver to our audiences. It's how we express our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Yeah. Now, to uh, let's go another level to a, a dude working at your local record store. I don't know if those exist still, but yeah. <laughs> at the record store, to that dude, music can be all of those things, and music can be something that he sells and buys. Uh, an argument I hear very often is, you know, music is transcendental, it's philosophical, it kind of defies, uh, uh, you know, kind of conceptualizing these kind of weird mathematical ways. Yeah, but so is a book. Yeah, Here's a library behind me. You know, a good book, I mean, of course, it can be transcendentally, can change the way you look at the world. You know, a really good book like the Bible or, or, or you know, an economics textbook or anything like that. Yeah, but we, we have no problem about buying and selling books. Yeah. Why is it that when we talk about music, it's all of a sudden, oh, no, we can't talk about money. It's the same thing. Yeah. Well, that's why we're here together so we can have this um, elephant talk about money. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So um, why don't you just just I think probably everyone listening will know what supply and demand is, but I really like the way you approach that in your in your video. So if you don't mind briefly just going through yeah. that, yeah. I'm I'm sorry for the little detour, but I I 
thought that some people might kind of have their on their minds. You sacrilegious, how you? Oh yeah, <laughs> profane fool! How dare you bring that into it? Well, I'm, I'm not. All I want to do, and this is kind of one of my main missions on my podcast, is I want to introduce nuanced thinking about music. It's yeah. not a unidimensional, transcendental, blah blah, whatever. You know, there's, there's plenty of people talking about music in that way. Yeah. There's not enough people talking about music in the economic sense, which will explain why, why we're kind of in the rut that we are as classical musicians. Yeah. So supply and demand, it's, it's, I don't know, like economics 101. <sighs> Basically, the, the more something is desired by a group of people, the more somebody's going to produce of it and the higher the price is going to be. The less interest there is in something, a product or a service, the less there is going to be of it in a market equilibrium, meaning everything's uh, um, everything's working the way it should. There's no interference in the market. We can talk about market interference and distortions, mm -hmm. but that's basically it. If if there's a huge demand for, I don't know, Macs or iPhones, I don't know why that would be the case, but if there is, well, guess what? What's his name? Tim Cook or whatever. He's going to make more and he's going to jack up the price. Because, you know, people are going to line up in tents and sleep around the block to get the new eye, eye patch or whatever that's called. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, and that has a direct correlation to, the, to what the value is of, of, a, of an item. Uh, the more demand there is, the more expensive it'll be. I think everyone can follow that very clearly. And, yeah. and, and what's, what's hard about music is that the value of it is is there's something elusive about it like yeah. it's easier to you know come up with the value for something more tangible like a house okay like look yeah. at yeah it's there's a lot of people want to live here a lot of demand not very many houses for the demand so the housing is uh, quite expensive here i assume probably oh yeah uh, in vancouver or uh, places in canada as well but uh yeah yeah and 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 if there's anything to demonstrate how mysterious value of music is, I mean that that example you brought up with Taylor Swift, you know, <laughs> someone who who makes just a bajillion dollars on on you know just a just a song versus you know a special a specialist in early music, you know it is not what is the what's the real difference there between her what she's what she's doing and what we're doing. And um, I think thinking of the value of what we do as more than just the actual notes and how good we are. I mean, I think there's a lot of, especially you grow up as a musician, you go to school so you can be proficient and, and an expert in your, in your area. Mm -hmm. But actually that's not going you know the Taylor Swift example shows us that there's more to that, more to that, um, and obviously there is a huge range from, you know, the fresh vocal major out of university to Taylor Swift, who is yeah. this wild, uh, you know, rock star. Um, but there's something, there's something else other than just learning our instrument, um, and and I guess uh, it's a complicated question, and so I, I guess this talk is for us to kind of flesh that out a little bit yeah, um, yeah so how would you how do you think thinking of this uh, thinking in the the framework of supply and demand or, or value uh, how should that how should musicians implement that how, how do how does the you know 
ex-professional singer or ex, you know, or, or this violinist now out of work implement these concepts um, going forward? It's it's a great question. I think it's kind of one of the most fundamental ones that I think we all have on our minds. Uh, what you mentioned about value and valuation, as, as it's called it economics, it's, again, it's a bit of a philosophical issue because um, uh, Mark David lives in Seattle. I hope it's okay that I say that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I live in Vancouver, which is, uh, sorry, Vancouver, Canada, not Vancouver, Oregon. It's, yeah, I'm right. in Washington too. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, I live, in, I live in Vancouver, Canada, which, you know, we're the same time zone, we're like, you know, three hour drive from each other. But you mentioned housing. The, what's that little beach called in Seattle? I love driving, is it Al Alki Beach? Alki well, Al Beach, yeah, it's beautiful. That whole little area there, you know, every time I'm in Seattle, I just love going for little drives there. And it's, um, you know, the beach communities and the view to, to, to kind of, what is it, downtown Seattle, I guess, it's just stunning views. Yeah. Uh, in, in Vancouver, Canada, we, you know, we have kind of the West End and downtown Vancouver and English Bay and West Vancouver and all that kind of stuff. The property prices are very similar. Now, why, why I'm mentioning damn houses, hmm. you, you look at a house, like, on Alki Beach, maybe costs, I don't know, four or five million. In Vancouver, certainly does. And much more, some of the big mansions. Is it the structure itself? Yeah. You know, like a pile of wood arrangement. Great, great analogy. Sorry, keep going. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it the, the, the pile of wood with a little sink and a dish towel? Is that what costs five million? Yeah. yeah. No, because you can drive off into. Um, I don't know, like Everett or Bellingham or something, or let's say Chilliwack, Rabbitsford in, in, in Vancouver, and the same house or even a better house costs, I don't know, a tenth of the price. So is it the building itself? No, it's not. It's supply and demand. It's the desirability of that product, which is, in the case of housing, location. Yeah. Yeah. Is it the location? Yeah. This is the same in the Midwest too. You know, we we do this sort of self-torturing exercise where we where we look in some place in the Midwest and look at some McMansion that is 10 times the size of our current house costing yeah. 10 times less. It's a, yeah, it's a kind of torture really, but- uh, I know. That, that's actually a great way to frame this. Um, like in this case for a singer, the singer is <clears throat> the towels, the dish sink, you know, the actual body of the, it's actually the physical structure of the house mm -hmm. and what gives the singer is what, what makes a singer valuable isn't so much that, but, but the demand for it from by other reasons for other reasons, because this, one thing that always drove me crazy is that I'd focused on getting um, things to sound good, you know, mm -hmm. as a, as, as a musician and also as a director and you realize, you know, you look at some of these famous pop stars who are singing the same music who aren't as good. Like I, I would say objectively not as good as some mm -hmm. of the people I know or work with. And why are they 20 times more valuable than anyone else here? Uh, it's, it is a, you know, th there's a huge disparity between the, you know, the physical structure of the house and what it's worth based on where it's at or the singer's voice versus uh, the demand for it. And, and there are other drivers like advertising um, or, or yeah. um, who you are, 
as a person, like in the popular people you've that have like shared your stuff. I mean, I think that's a big uh, that's a big way people are getting famous these days through social media. Is that having someone super popular, like if you have classical FM share something you've done, it'll just explode, or uh, a famous cooking uh, cooking network share your food pick, then you're you know then you've got a million followers suddenly. Exactly. Um, exactly. So yes, did you want to say something more about that? Yes, I just I just wanted to jump in because you said one word that I think is kind of the key to all this is objectively. You said mm -hmm. that that's kind of where I was going with the house analogy, and you can look at anything else. It, um, just thought of another silly example. Um, yeah. I think me and you are kind of more or less the same age, so you remember pagers in the nineties, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Still don't know what a dad pager is or what it does, but who cares? It kind of you know had a short period of existence. Now, let's say me and you decide to start a company tomorrow and we're going to be you know k&m's um pagers northwest pacific pagers whatever and we make you know we hire engineers we make the best pager that's ever existed you know um, um and somebody inspects it he goes wow the software is top-notch all the circuitry you know we do a marketing campaign everything's just perfect about the product right it's made in the most amazing way yeah nobody's gonna buy it yeah yeah <laughs> there's zero demand for it now objectively there's in economics and philosophy as well there's the objective value of something and its subjective value yeah. objective this is i think it's a really helpful way to think about music in this way yeah objectively the house the little kind of rotting shack on alkai beach is worth i don't know 50k that kind of thing mm -hmm. but you put that house right on the beach oh boy now it's five million you yeah. put that, that little shack in the middle of I don't know, middle of Wisconsin or whatever, you know, somewhere right down the middle of America. Nobody's going to buy that thing. So objectively, you look at a St. Matthew Passion, St. John Passion. Uh, how many thousands of books have been written on the it's sort of astounding superhuman genius of Bach? Mm -hmm. so objectively, you can, uh, objectively obviously means um, what's quantifiable, what are the yes. facts? about the thing we're talking about. What are its kind of immutable characteristics? Not what we feel and think about it and how we perceive it, but what's inherent to it. So a Bach fugue, five voices, six, it comes out a kind of subject and, and all this complexity. So objectively, it has a lot of value. Yeah. Bach's music, for example, but it's the subjective that gives it its price. Yes. Yeah, it's, I really like that. It's how others perceive it and the value they think they will get out of it that determines how much they're willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do we bring all these concepts to, for for some for any musician to apply to their decision making? Like, how do we think? You know, now we've established that your value as a musician is not simply how good you are. Yeah. But there are other factors that 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 determine maybe like the overall um, demand or pricing uh, of what. Of um, of what someone's willing to pay for your work, yeah. I mean, so clearly it's beyond just being super good at what you're playing or singing. Um, how do you think about you know what other aspects, what other relevant aspects do you think we need to consider when we um, think about musician value? Well, I mean, there's obviously proficiency. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you're gonna say that that's the first step, kind of being. Being really a master of your craft, yeah. 
And one of the first videos I did on my own show was, was should you go to music school? And, yeah. you know, it's a complicated question, but, but there is value in it is that you learn kind of the, the tools of your trades. You know, you really train from supposedly good, good kind of craftsmen. They teach you how your trade works, how to, if you're a singer, how to produce good tone in a healthy way. Yeah. Uh, if you're an instrumentalist, how, you know, how to use your hands to get music out of a, you know, box with strings on it called a guitar. So that's, that's the first step like that, you know, without that first step, we can't talk about anything else. You need to be kind of very good at what you do. Yeah. Although and there is danger of being over-specialized and being too good. Yes, I just want to interject very quickly, just yeah. since we're dwelling on mu music school. Please, yeah. The other value of music school, and it's more of a responsibility on educators, they really need to be upfront the thing is, education is a business, and I, f I find it dishonest. I mean, and I can only see this really clearly looking back to my own experience. That there's so many eager musicians to get through music school that really have this idea of becoming, say, an opera star. But I think the 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 uh, teachers have a responsibility to tell their students, yeah, that's not going to happen, or like, yeah, you have a you have a decent shot. You should keep going. But I think the incentives, you know, as, as education being a business doesn't really allow for that kind of honesty. And I think there are a lot of musicians that go through school. They have the, there's, there's something, and they show me the resume. There's something really bizarre about getting, you know, what's, what's presented up front when I, when I get an audition from somebody or when I, I'm, I'm considering a musician is how like extremely long this resume is. And, yeah. but like, I can't find the clip of them. You know, I got to like dig around a little bit oh. to find the clip. Cause it's not, you know, people hiring musicians don't care. At least I don't care where you went to school or what you did or what, I just want to hear you like do this thing and yeah. it sounds good. Then I'm going to hire you, but yeah. But but I think I really do think that um, music teachers have in the university a, a an obligation to just be frank with people like this. Uh, anyway, sorry, I just wanted to put that rant out there before I let you continue. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for everybody watching the comment section, I hope it's live. Please feel free at any point, jump in with a question, clarification. If something we said doesn't make sense or or yeah. you're wondering about, please jump right in, leave a comment. We'll... I have no idea how to see it, but Mark Davis going to tell me what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the two of us talking, we want to include you as well. So, yeah. Uh, you know, how in last ten years, for example, in America, uh, when I when I look at the figures and statistics, they're they're always it's it's scary when you look at the numbers because they, they don't care. In 2018, there were 37,000, 37,500 and something musicians that graduated from American colleges and universities uh, with a degree in a symphonic instrument. Now, we're not talking singing or, you know, weirdos like the guitar or, you know, <laughs> other stuff like that. We're just talking symphonic instruments, 37,000. Yeah. And that's only counting universities and colleges that are full four-year programs, which tells you, you know, what that the statistics, the real numbers are much higher of musicians that are graduating. So 37,000. Okay, let's take 35,000. 
when you compare that to 2018, to how many orchestral jobs were posted, uh, there was a recent study that I read, that's where I'm getting these figures from, the ratio of graduated symphonic musicians to available um, sort of full-time orchestral spots was 23 to 1. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's only in 2018. Uh, the figures keep getting worse and worse, by the way. That's the kind of the, the historical trend of the data. I, I've managed to find data for the last sort of 2018 years. For the last 18 years, the kind of the data is quite clear that fewer and fewer um, full-time and part-time orchestral positions, more and more people graduating, fighting for the same job. Yeah. In 2018, the ratio was 23 to 1. So if you're a professor of a symphonic instrument at a college or university, how on earth would you tell your violin, you know, first-year violin student these statistics? Yeah. What would what would they say? They go, what am I doing here? What are my chances? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's also a fair point, though, that some people might go to university to not necessarily to have that goal, that specific goal in mind. Maybe they actually don't care about having a, a university uh, yeah. position, but, uh, but they just want to learn. They just want to get good at it and um, learn, ha have a lot of experience playing with other people. Um, yeah. But... Yes, if you're if the objective is to get a job at one of these, one of these high bank, it's very competitive, <laughs> to say the least. Oh, you got to be realistic. That I think the only job market in in America that's more dismal than the symphonic, um, um, than the you know symphony orchestra market is the academic job market. You know, you graduate with a PhD, you're trying to find a professorship, a tenure track position. Good luck. I think that's even more dismal than the symphonic musicians. Oh, wow. Uh, you have yeah. some figures for that? Uh, not off the top of my head, yeah. but it's, yeah. it's, it's notorious. It's often cited in, in kind of in journals of, of labor economics as, as the worst job market in America. Wow. For the, like since the kind of the mid seventies, you know, the boomers, so what is that? 20, 25, uh, 45 years, last yeah. 45, 50 years, the worst job market. In America, I've, I haven't looked at recent numbers, but yeah. And then this so, academic—is is this all, all sort of academic professorships? Or basically, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just music, but sort of overall, sort of teaching positions in higher education, particularly tenure track. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it it does it does it's all pointing to the fact that you know musicians trying to make a living need to kind of like figure out how to. I mean, unless you're in that top percentile, yeah. you need to be able to piece something together. Oh, yeah. And 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 perhaps that's sort of where I found myself. You know, originally I I wanted to be a singer, uh, a countertenor, actually. I, I still do it every now and then, and I think I, I can hang in the, uh, you know, in the ensemble world. Um, but, you know, I wasn't going to be the next, you know, who's this? Is it David Daniels, who's like super famous countertenor? Wasn't going to even approach that. Charles Daniels, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Charles Daniels is the tenor that everyone loves, but I think there's a countertenor, David Daniels, or something. Anyway. Oh, oh, oh maybe. Uh, uh, but there was no way I was going to approach that level of success. So, uh, you know, it is important, I think, and and it's just maybe this is obvious to everybody, but you know that that it does seem like most of us that that want to focus on a discipline will need to figure out how to. Do other things. I mean, I guess a lot of people make a living um, giving lessons 
um, kind of dipping their foot into the education world, mm -hmm. uh, giving private lessons. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you know, there, there's, there is, COVID has really, um, uh, there are a lot of freelance musicians that are suffering from COVID and they have certainly, they're, they're feeling the brunt and they're trying to figure out what to do next. And, you know, the, the force majeure clause is really, um, hurt people and, and, you know, that there is, we need to be respectful of the music musician economy and supporting them professionally, but it really, you know, it's, it's like, well, what do we do from here? I mean, th we can't create work right now, but um, I think it's also worth sharing that there's a business side to this and we're trying to create the people that are, that are creating groups and that are um, trying to create opportunities are the real ones trying to create demand for the, for the, for the musicians. So there is a place for them. So um, I think there's some sympathy that needs to be directed in the, in, in those places. Um, so what about, and, and one of the things I think is important to mention is branding. I mean, because of the way uh, musicians advertise, the way information is being consumed these days, we have to think more about how we present ourselves. And I, I like to think of that as branding, oh, having yes. a consistent branding. I mean, that that sort of is like the gift wrapping over the you know our house, so to speak. And yeah. um, uh, and. And, and I think that's not actually brought up enough. Um, but so let's let's pivot here to to digital content. How do you think about how do you think about the digital content that musicians just kind of often you know, you, we sort of have to create no matter what, and we have to share to the internet no matter what. What do you how do you think about? Do you think it's worth um, creating digital content? And um, is there a way to to monetize it better than we are have done already? Yeah. Oh man, there's a lot there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a lot there. where do I start? Um, something I just wanted to point out is there's this book that I've very very much enjoyed. I'll show it over here. It's called The Economics of Music. Let me just see if it's picking up correctly on the camera. Oh yeah, so, here it is: The Economics of Music by Peter Schmack. Nice. Um, Peter Schmuck. Nice one. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. I don't know. He's German. So, yeah. I, I, no, yeah. I like that his last name is Schmuck. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know. But he's, he's a brilliant economist of music. There's not that many. There's two that I know of, and I have all their books. There's not that many people studying economics of music. But he gives a very cool little chart. I know this is very low tech, but this is a graph that shows the percentage of earnings. Of different types of musicians. So, classical musicians. Um, this is in America in 2013 to 2015. These are averages. Classical musicians, uh, these are um, uh, different major revenue sources by genre. So, classical music, 28% teaching, 28% salaried work, which means orchestra, orchestra jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, a very small percentage from recording and session work and very small percentage from live work. So most of the income of classical musicians on average in America has been from salary or teaching. You go to rock and pop music and um, 70, 40, 45% of their income is from performing. Oh. 
music. If you're in jazz, it's so it's kind of hard to tell what the numbers are 30 minus 40, 41 percent of jazz musicians' income on average tends to come from live performing, very small part from what is this teaching on the graph. Mm -hmm. So it kind of shows you national averages that performance based income was never a large part of a musician's revenue stream. Of a, sorry, of a classical musician's revenue stream. Mm. Uh, it's kind of the kind of what the numbers show. Yeah. The, unless you are Pavarotti or some <laughs> big opera star making yeah. tens of thousands of dollars, uh, tens of thousands of dollars a week, you know, just doing doing one role, um, you know. But uh, I think that's, yeah, that's a rare case. But yeah, th that's very interesting. Yeah. So it's performance. You say it's like only a, it depends on the discipline, but it's not. It, it's like fifty percent or below. It's like it's like less than half of the the income. Oh yeah, for classical musicians, it was something like fifteen or eighteen percent, or something like that. It's below twenty percent. Yeah, on average, on you know, sort of on reported averages. Um, what you know, you mentioned Pavarotti, and of course, we talked about Taylor Swift. Yeah, he, there is another law of, of economics that um, it's actually one of my upcoming videos. It's on the Pareto effect, the Pareto distribution. It's also called Price's Law or the Matthew Principle. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, kind of, it's, there's a line in the Bible in um, Gospel of Matthew that goes, uh, to those that have, more will be given, and those, um, from those that have nothing, everything shall be taken. Mm -hmm. It's very kind of, you know, one of the most controversial little lines from the Bible, but it, it, there is actually an economic principle based on that, and is the Pareto distribution, meaning the square root of all people involved in a creative industry do half the work. Meaning, if you have 100 people in a company, the square root of 100 is 10. Mm -hmm. So 10 people do half the work in a company. Um, and that applies all the way down. So from out of those 10 people, square root of that is is how many people do half of that work so by the time you get to the top to the one person they're doing a disproportionately large amount of the work uh -huh. there and and is the same <coughs> excuse me and it's the same with with number of records sold uh taylor no, swift's no. at the top by the way uh, last decade or so she's always been at the top it's basically a pyramid and queen taylor's at the top pure numbers of, of, of record sales. You look at um, touring revenue, and this is data from Live Nation. They release a lot of their things, so you can look at the data. Uh, again, it's the way the numbers are distributed. It's again, it's a pyramid, it's a pre-to distribution. Why do we need to know that? Well, people like Luciano Pavarotti or Taylor Swift are at the top. Yeah, They produce disproportionately more orders of magnitude more than everybody else involved in the same industry. And as a uh, continuation of that, they get most of the money. Yeah. It's a brutal, brutal law, but it's 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 a really kind of basic concept in economics. It's super interesting. I'd never heard of the Matthew effect. Uh, uh, Eric, do you know an Eric Abink? Uh, he's he's a singer from UBC, wasn't he? Okay, well, he just chimed in. Um, yeah, actually, you think... I think in our little um, studio here, where we're talking through, you can see the public comments um, there. But he, uh, yeah, he. Oh, sorry, Eric. Of course, yes, I know Eric. Hi, Eric. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked at the comments. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, he comments the Matthew effect in granting funds is also a thing. Probably, yeah. They even got special categories for it. Oh, this is fascinating. Huh. Yeah, I wonder how much I wonder how much sort of music revenue is going to, you know, what percentage of music revenue is going to these to these, you know, heavy hitters, to these Taylor Swifts of the world. Well, I mean, it's got, I mean, they're on the top of the pyramid, so they, they must get like oh, yeah. like 98% or something, or like 95% or something. Disproportionately more. It's not, it's 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 brutal when you look at the numbers. And the first time I really saw that kind of distribution was in this book, The Economics of Music. Uh -huh. And it shows you these charts and you go, wow. It goes through a lot of record deals of, you know, the, uh, what is it, BMI music conglomerating with Emmy and all that. And it, and it, these acquisition deals, and it shows you the percentage of, of touring income, of um, copyright legal fees and merchandise, everything. It just shoots up to the top like that. It's 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 a it's, it's a prey to distribution. It's really really brutal. Wow. Uh, oh yeah, they're not pretty numbers. Not pretty. But it it generally tends to apply to creative industries, like an, an industry where something is produced. If you look at a law firm. It's the same there. Half the lawyer, um, the square root of all lawyers do half the work. And the square root of all that, of all those, do half the work, the 25%. So it keeps going up and up and up. Uh -huh. But that's in in a kind of in a free market system. That's where the money goes as well. It just shoots up to the top, to the Taylor Swift's and the Pavarotti's. So how do you think, do you know if this income is being, if the revenue they're they're collecting like what proportion of that is our digital sales, like music digital sales, or is it touring, um, like touring ticket sales, like performance sales? Well, the overall kind of consensus among among researchers of, of music economics, and the numbers are quite clear on this, is that across genres, across... I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I I did turn my phone off, but uh, somebody's spying on us. <laughs> I don't know what it is that I said, but I triggered Google or, or Alex, or I don't I don't know what that is. Yeah, so sorry. that happens to me all the time. Then I all good. I don't know. I just said something. It just triggered Google search. Anyway, uh, the 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 data is quite clear across genres, across institutions, across salaried versus non-salaried employment, uh, married versus single people. That you can break the data in many different ways. It's clear. Most of the income comes from live performance uh huh nowadays that's data from the last uh this is from 2017 the book so last last 3 years it's very clear it's from live performance right. uh, you know everybody's complaining about spotify and you know uh, spotify is ripping off artists completely missing the point yeah. that the purpose of spotify was to never uh, uh make that your sole income source yeah that was never the idea of it it's a, it's a tool for for promotion basically yeah uh, and but everybody's running around spouting off about Spotify. Oh boy, oh boy, everybody's favorite topic. <laughs> yeah, do this. You need to write to your local congressman, yeah, because he cares about your music. <laughs> well, I think you know, I think there is people are shocked at how, um, well, it's just the way the digital world has uh, evolved. I mean, you know, in the 90s, we were buying, you know, pe people, record companies were making, you know, great money, um, selling. Selling well, not great money, but they were made, they were doing okay selling CDs or records, and now people don't need to do that anymore. Um, they can just listen to you on YouTube or Google Play or Spotify for 
note for note for free. Yeah. Um, and, and this is all something that artists elect to do. You know, just to clarify, this is something that artists elect to do when we produce something. Um, so what do you think about, so what do you think about Google Play, Spotify? Is that something artists should continue? Do you, do you, how useful do you find these services to um, a musician's life? God, I've, do you I've, think it's still worth, do you still post on there or do, do you ever post on there, your your music? Me, me not so much because I'm, I'm long ago I realized that I really don't have what it takes to be a full-time professional performer. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be you know, self-denigrated, but, but I've had a, a lovely performing career and I still continue to do that. But I know I don't have what it takes to be at the top of the Pareto distribution. Yeah. I'm just honest with myself. You know, what I do seems to bring pleasure to a lot of people, and that's I'm I'm satisfied with that. You know, we've been on tours together, and I have my own kind of um, solo career. That's fine, but I'll never be at the top of the pyramid. I know my place. Yeah, I I, I know what I can do, and I definitely know what I can do. Mm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm not I'm not really in that game. I'm I'm in kind of different games at the same time, but. Um, Another thing that the data shows is that in the 90s, you mentioned 90s and the, and the CD sales, and before that, what was that, cassettes and, and yeah. records, you know, long play records and all that. Uh, the, the data that I told you that, that, the, that most of a musician's income comes from live performance now, that was reversed in the 90s. Most of it came from record sales. Yeah. A live concert was just a way for the musician to promote their CDs. Mm-hmm. But that's the way the music industry worked back then. Yeah. It doesn't anymore. And you see all these musicians and, you know, it kind of makes me sad. You go, why are you laboring like, you know, like a slave to produce, you know, a CD and a full length CD? Nobody's buying those. Maybe your grandma and people her age at the bingo hall, but that's not how the music economy works anymore. It saddens me because you have so much incredible talent and, like the other day on one of the early music Facebook groups, this brilliant young lutenist, uh, you know, he's up and coming, the, the next generation, stunning player, and he's doing a CD of, of John Dowland. Like the most, probably the most, I don't know numbers, but probably one of the most recorded lute composers. And it's, you look at the repertoire he's doing and it's done to death. You go, kid, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, he had to go fund me to raise money for it, which is fine. But then it's so much time and energy is going to go in producing this, this artifact that, that I, I hope he gets a lot of sales. I hope he does really well. He deserves it. He's a great musician. But he's gone, it, like, it's backwards. It's not the 90s anymore. It's, yeah. not, it's not how the business works. Yeah. I mean, in this, and this touches on, you know, the value of recordings. Like, how should we think about, you know, CD recording and making something, spending resources to make something. I mean, I, I don't think anyone in the professional circuits are making CDs to make that money back. I mean, that's just not, you know, if you're paying musicians their their rate and you to make a CD, there's, unless you're, you know, I think the average professional ensemble or singer is not going to be able to to recoup that back in, in, recoup it. Yeah. in oh, yeah. e-sales. But I think the value, at least for me, why we do it sometimes, not nearly as much as we as we used to, actually. But 
that it's, you just have to chalk it up to a marketing cost. I mean, this, you know, creating something like spending money to make a, a great video or a, or something that, oh man, I just, you know, I don't know if I do Dowland or you know, something that's been recorded a million times that has no value outside your own family and friend circle. You know, I mean, more or less, you're not going to buy uh, uh, the millionth recording of Beethoven's whatever. Yeah, right. Exactly. They don't know. I mean, this is not going to happen. Yeah, it's it's it's, and and I and I'm really kind of sincere about that. It make it it really saddens me when I see that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I'm like, why a talented young musician, uh, putting so much, you know, and, and not only young, you know, kind of old ages, of course, but you know, up and coming musicians. That's kind of. I don't know where they get those ideas. That well, I'm a pianist. I need to record the full Beethoven cycle of. No, you don't, because no one cares, man. Like there's so much of it online. Um, you know, I, I get worked up about this kind of stuff, but it's 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 true. Yeah. You look online, I can listen to uh, uh, all the Beethoven things he ever wrote from the best pianists in the world, living and dead ones. Yeah, <laughs> and you're asking me to listen to yours. Why? Why should I do that? Yeah, maybe value. Maybe you're better technically than all those people, but good luck proving yourself in the market. It's so. Like you kind of start in backwards. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I wasn't avoiding your question. You did ask me no, twice. No, go for it. <laughs> twice you did ask me. Okay, okay. Uh, what's what's the value of digital um, digital recordings? Google Play, Apple. Um, um, mm -hmm. What is it? I, I'm I'm not a Mac guy. Well, iTunes, I guess, and Apple Music. Well, it's statistically speaking, you're not going to make money off of it. Some people are, but again, it's a Pareto distribution. They are going to make money, but the average musician won't. So the value of that is, I mean, kind of re remember what I said about the 90s. The concert was a way to promote the CD. Yeah. Now is the opposite. The recording is a way to promote the concert. Mm -hmm. even, even someone like, you know, Taylor Swift, again, um, you look at her record sales as a percentage of her total income, based on what we have in terms of data, and the breakdown is in this book, by the way. It's not you know, kind of my research than pulling out of my hat. Yeah. Taylor Swift's recorded music sales as a percentage of her total income are probably just as much as any other average musicians as a percentage. The number is higher, right? But the, but the overall percentage is not that much higher. So the point is to promote your live shows. Yeah, yeah. Economically, that's what the numbers suggest. That that's what's happening is the reverse of the '90s. Things switched in late, uh, like oh seven, oh eight, oh nine. After Napster, iTunes, all that kind of stuff. That's when that switch happened. Yeah, and you know these these Google Play, iTunes things are are really changing our relationship to music. I mean, not only in the way we consume it, but you know now now we have algorithms that decide what we want. You know, they just know based on what we've listen to and what we like oh, yeah. they'll just they'll just create a playlist which is effective and now we don't really know who we're listening to anymore um on these platforms which is such a weird weird thing um i guess maybe that's even more important that your branding is uh is clear so yeah you know, but you know people are losing touch with the artists through these platforms also. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, this is just the nature of it. I'm not assigning a value to, um, you know, I don't know whether or not I think Google Play uh, or a Spotify is good or bad, but uh, 
it's definitely changing our connection, our relationship to artists. We can literally just put, you know, you've got, you go to these things. Well, how are you feeling? You know, oh, I'm feeling chill. And then it will be at play. You <laughs> a chill playlist full of artists who you don't know, actually. And, and yeah. <laughs> and and you'll like it because it's effective at at figuring out your tastes. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so um, that's just the nature of Spotify at the moment. Yeah, um, that's true. So how so? How do you personally um, like? Do you spend? Were you spending most of your time performing as for your income before, or how much teaching do you personally do? And how do you sort of piece together your professional life? Well, for me personally, I mean, this is talking pre-COVID because COVID changed a lot of things, man. It's mm -hmm. things really changed, and not for the better. But you know, I'm I'm still very fortunate where I am, and I'm very very thankful to what I have in my life. And it's it's could be a whole lot worse, yeah. could be a whole lot, whole lot better. But I'm just very thankful for what I do have. Um, so pre-COVID. I was I was a high school uh, band teacher. As to do that, so you know that's a full time gig. On um, on Sunday mornings, I was a music director. I played the organ and I directed a small choir. And I also had private students, about about a dozen. So that was kind of the my breakdown in the last two years, I guess. That was kind of my different revenue streams and a lot of performing. A lot of performing, like, oh, I gotta do a tour there, or you know, Edmonton Symphony is doing a, doing a Messiah, so they want to loot, so I'll go off and do that. So a, a mix of things. Yeah. A mix of things, yeah. And I think that's the case for for a lot of musicians. Yeah. At least, yeah. Yeah, in my case, you know, I I started singing and I did did come out of college, you know, with you know, a handful of section leader positions at churches, but yeah, eventually became a choir director and i really see my work uh with bird ensemble and with radiance as um like i don't know a marketing branding cost that's actually not where i make most of my money <laughs> i mean i'm i'm a i'm a choir director so i have a salary position at 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 a church and then i um and then i do recording and that's basically my livelihood. And I, uh, I maybe some people will be surprised because uh, I think a lot of people see me through um, even Bird Ensemble and Radiance. And, and I think choral directors, you know, I don't know how they, I think it's possible to make a living solely on choir choral directing. Um, if you have a, a big enough community choir that can um, support, I think some people, some people do that, but mm -hmm. I think, Sort of throwing together a livelihood is is sort of the way you do it these days, um, for people yeah. like us. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, and the data is quite clear on that as well. It's it's multiple, multiple um, revenue streams, income streams. It's it's kind of the reality, and it was it was one of the, um, again one of the first videos I did on my own channel. It was whether you should specialize or be a generalist. Oh. And it kind of, it, it's sort of what you're saying. If if you want to be, so the the concept is, is if you're if you're a specialist, it means that you do one thing, and and you, and it's you have this kind of competence hierarchy that you're climbing, but it's very steep because 
let's say you're a, you're a concert violinist, right? You want to be concert master. You want to be um, a concerto soloist. But so that's your niche. That's your market. Think about all the people you're competing with, right? To climb that little ladder. But you're a specialist. And that's what you do. You don't know anything about recording or streaming or writing or editing or public speaking. Like you, you don't have any marketable skills to speak of. That's your game. You're a specialist. And sadly, music schools, that's the game they're in. They're in the game of preparing musicians to be very, very narrow specialists, forgetting to tell them that there's millions of others doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Good luck then. Yeah. The kind of the, the corollary concept is that of being a specialized generalist, meaning that you, you know, the T-shaped thing that, you know, kind of self-help books tell you about, meaning that you should have a lot of, excuse me, a lot of vertical depth and expertise in one field, but then have a lot of breadth of knowledge and skills that complement that. Yeah. Meaning if you're a, let's take a singer, you yourself are a singer, well, what kind of skills would you add to that to really make yourself stand out? Well, you you, you direct, you conduct, okay, maybe you do, I don't know if you do, but maybe you do some sound engineering, some recording as well. Mm -hmm. Do you do that? Oh, yeah. There you go. So yeah. that's a valuable skill. Right away, you're becoming more and more unique just by adding these little skills. So now you're a you're a professional singer yourself. You're a you're a, you're a leader in a field. You can lead people in an ensemble, and you can, you have the technical knowledge to do recordings. There aren't that many people that do those th three things. Yeah. Already, so in your kind of area of let's say Seattle or you know even American general, I mean the the more you broaden your geography, the more People tend to do the same thing, but in the Seattle area, I mean, how many other people do what you do? Then you add more skills to it, like, well, what you're doing right now is basically public speaking. Mm. Well, who does that? Very few people. So the more and more skills you add, you eventually become the only person that does those things, and you're now irreplaceable. Mm. Mm. No, nobody can do those things. Yeah. As long as they're mutually, mutually, uh, uh, mutually beneficial, they enhance each other, the skills. Yeah, that's actually a great way to put it. I mean, I, people should think about adding complementary skill sets to what they're currently good at. And mm -hmm. I and I think when when we make decisions as musicians or as directors in a heads of arts organizations, we always need to think about, you know, what is what is what is it that we do that's of value? Like what is it about Mark David Obenza that is that people actually like, you know, and building off of that. Um, and sometimes that's a really, that, that requires an honest sort of um, heart to heart. Um, but, you know, I would, if if I were to like, just prescribe some things for people listening, um, musicians going forward, you know, I would, this now's a great time to kind of learn about, learn a few new skills, learn how to record a few things. Um, and you can do so much of this learning on YouTube or online. You don't need to, you don't need to sign up for a course or anything. You, I mean, you, that might be easier for some people, but I think now's the time to think about what complementary skill sets mm -hmm. can you add to your arsenal um, that you can just pick up during this time when we can't perform. Um, yeah, and I see you doing the same thing with your. With your podcast and I and I, it, it's such an interesting angle to go into. Um, uh, well, it it's it, uh, again. I just I just looked at it from that point of view. 
complementary skills. Sorry, I couldn't find the word complementary. Like, well, why did my brain do that? <laughs> uh, by the way, English is not my first language. So sometimes I have these kind of little brain glitches. Oh, but you have a sexy accent, though, so that, that makes up for it. <laughs> well, never mind the accent. I wish I had your hairline. <laughs> <Too shy. laughs> if you're watching me and Mark David go back a long time, so we've... <laughs> No. We've drank at the back of tour buses and all that kind oh, of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I can't remember your damn question, but I'm trying to answer it. So, <laughs> God, I know. What, what did I just say? Oh, complementary uh, skill sets. Complementary skill set. Yeah. I was testing. I wanted to see if you remember. Oh, anyway. yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I, I think it's a, it's a very beneficial, very, very good way of looking at it. How, how how many musicologists are there that are interested in economics? Well, there's really two that I know, and I have both of the books on my on my desk. Mm -hmm. There's not that many people that do that for you know wh whatever the reason is. But you, I didn't do that on purpose. Like, hmm, what can I? What two kind of seemingly random and unconnected things can I put together in order to give myself you know a leg up in the market? No, it's just what I was interested in. Yeah. I've always been interested in, in in free market economics in in kind of government regulation and how that what effect that has on the on the arts and on everything really yeah and then I did a PhD in that and and I've always been a musician so it was kind of it's my own kind of intellectual curiosity that led me to really develop the skills that I that I have and then how do I broadcast into the world how do I connect with people well writing really is is that there's another complementary skill that basically everybody should have. Writing. How do you clarify your thoughts on yeah. a piece of paper? Got good point. How do you structure an argument, man? Like, like, forget about an argument. Forget about what we're doing. A grant, right? How are you going to write a, write a grant? Explain in three, you know, three hundred fifty words why we should give you this little community development grant. What are you going to say? You're going to stutter. You're going to blabber along because you've never been taught how to write because you were a musician and you took one English class that you slept through, right? It's not a skill. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to be cynical, but but it, but it, it's a serious point. It's not something that we're taught in music school. I was never taught how to write a grant. Yeah. I, I only really learned how to write when I became a doctoral student because you got to write like a maniac, got to push papers out. I couldn't write, but I still have my very first paper that I submitted for, for a journal when when I was in my really my first week of being a doctoral student. It's a total disaster. It's it's embarrassing that I that I, I finished a, a, a college diploma, a bachelor's degree, and a master's degree in Canada, and I was never taught how to write properly. Mm. I, I you know I'm, I don't place the blame on anybody else. Yeah, it's on me. It was my fault for not picking up that skill, but I never needed it. And you. Why wouldn't you learn how to do that? How to write a blog, or how to write a script and then do a video on it, or a grant? Yeah, you know, it's, that's it's a really, that that is a really good point. That writing is something that that wasn't important to me until until graduate school. I mean, just it just never was was emphasized. And uh, uh, so I want to I actually want to want to switch to a topic that I didn't that I didn't say I wanted to that, that I haven't that I didn't plan in advance. Let's go. So something that just occurred to me is is in Canada. Correct, just correct me here, but government funding in music is be, uh, more. You get more funding from the government for music than in the United States. Mm. I guess. Tell me, is that true? Uh, mm. Do you think that's true? And what do you think? How do you? Th 
uh, how is that um, impacting music generally? Do you think or the performing arts scene there? Oh boy, there's one. So far, what we've, so far, what we've been talking about was you know fairly vanilla. Now we're starting to kind of venture into controversial territory. Which that's yeah. fine. That's fine. Just give a little peek. A little, yeah, just a kind of little peek behind the curtain, kind of, yeah. Because, you know, this is something that American artists are so jealous of uh, that. Oh, you know, places like Canada have this. You know, I think I've I've heard some numbers, some arts, bigger arts organizations um, from Canada just getting obscene amounts of government money, which is wonderful on on the face of it. I guess I I, I officially do not have an opinion about about um, this. But I'm, uh -huh. I'm super curious to see, you know, like how involved should the government be in in funding the performing arts? But oh, I, I'm just curious about your your take on this, you know, especially with coming from a sort of a supply and demand economist um, yes. viewpoint. Yes, 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 yes. Great, great way to tie back to our, our, our overall theme. <clears throat> um, there is data on this. There is research on this, and for our viewers. For this billions and zillions of people watching us, I would guide them to. <laughs> Great, and we'll, I'll, I'll, why don't we afterwards? I can link all these books in the description, also. I know, and I apologize—a crude way of just showing it, but I just wanted people just to have an image of it. And you can obviously pause the video and kind of take a screenshot. But it's called "The Perilous Life of Symphony Orchestras" by a labor economist called Robert J. Flanagan. The most brilliant book, on, and best and most up-to-date research on the economics of symphony orchestras. And one of the chapters, he goes through different funding models for symphony orchestras. And the, he's, he's American, he's from, I think from Boston. So what he shows is that uh, the average is about 30, 36, 37% of total orchestra revenues come from ticket sales, performance-based revenue. In America, the remainder of the, of the deficit is made up by private donation, not by government support. In the European Union, it's the opposite. Uh, most, the biggest kind of segment of funding for symphony orchestras in, in the European Union comes from government support. Uh, Canada is Canada leans closer to the European Union than America in terms of the numbers, but not as much as you think. It's not you know full on European Union kind of have as much as you want. It's you know it's, it's like ninety percent covered by 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 the governments. Yeah. It's not, but it's not as privately funded as America either. So it's Canada's a bit of a hybrid, and there's there's pie charts and there's figures in this book, and you can you know. Um, I'm not going to flip through it to give you precise figures, but it's that's the case with Canada. Uh, see, this, this is actually the topic of my next video. <laughs> it's something called the cost disease in the performing arts. And basically the concept is that if you have, if your productivity is fixed, meaning what you output as a, as a sector of the economy is fixed, and you can't really improve it because of technology, but your labor costs keep rising, that'll give you an ever-widening gap mm. between what it costs to produce and uh, and the money you can get out of it for, for selling the product. If 
the classic example is is a Mozart uh, uh, Mozart's uh, string quintet in G minor, composed in 1787, if I remember correctly. In 1787, it took exactly the same amount of time and the same amount of performers to produce one unit of of product, meaning one performance of the G minor quintet. Mm -hmm. Today in 2020, which is 213 years later, wow, pretty good math. <laughs> I almost fell high school because of math, by the way. Anyway, um, 213 years later, the same string quintet takes exactly the same number of people to produce five quintets and exactly the same amount of time, 34 minutes, I think it was. So all of the incredible technological revolution that we've had in the world, the steam engine, electricity, um, the selfie stick, <laughs> All of those sort of things, the technological innovation that's revolutionized basically every other sector of the economy, uh, that has had zero impact on the productivity of symphony musicians. Hang on, just so to create, is this like including rehearsal time and um, salary? You're talking about the cost to create one performance. Yeah. What was it? Again? Uh, of, of the most string quintet, which is 34 minutes. Which is 34 minutes. and. What's involved? Uh, what is included in to pr in production? Is this like rehearsal time and mu paying musicians and stuff like that? Well, I, I mean the principle is the same. You can include those things if you want. But but at, at GM General Motors, in the seventies, it used to take them an average of forty one hours to produce one car on average. Huh. Nowadays, it takes them twenty four hours because of what? Because of improved improvements in technology. Uh -huh their labor costs have gone way down because 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 of automation. Now it takes far fewer people to produce the same car right. as it like that. That hasn't happened in music. Mm. Uh, a Beethoven symphony still takes the same amount of time yeah. and the same amount of people. So your your output is fixed as a symphony orchestra. I see what you, you're saying, yeah. You, you cannot get any more efficient at producing. Technology doesn't help you. Yes. Uh, and now we're talking about live music. Recorded music is, is a different story. So but the wages of musicians keep rising because of you know union negotiations and and you know minimum wages, uh, so you get this constantly widening gap. Mm -hmm. And I know this is a roundabout way of answering a question, but it's it's this widening gap that needs to be, uh, it needs to be filled by either well you only only have three ways: selling tickets, government support, or private charity. Yeah. In America, most of that gap. I'm sorry, it's a roundabout, it's kind of a very long way of, of, of answering, but it's, I wanted to explain why there needs to be, um, why the economic model of symphony orchestras and performing arts organizations overall requires the funding of either private individuals or government agencies because of a gap. Mm. It's called cost disease. Mm. Um, do you want me to answer the one about should the government support the arts? Do you want me to go there? Yes, I, yes. Just give, give us a give, give us a peek of of your sure. of your thinking there because okay, the, I honestly don't don't really know. I mean, we have Bird Ensemble and and Radiance. You know, we're we're funded. We have some donate donors. Mm. Bird Ensemble, I think, uniquely has become and it has found itself in a situation where we, I mean, we 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 have donor support, which is great, and um. But but we're almost to the point where like just solely ticket sales are um, are paying for everything, basically. Great. Um, great. Great. But uh, that's not to discourage people from donating. <laughs> but uh, but I'm, you know I wonder you know how 
we we get a you know a few grants every now and then, but you know grants isn't how we survive. So yeah. you know, in a place like the EU or in Canada, where where grant funding it occupies quite a bit of the operations budget, I I, I assume a larger percentage. Um, I, I guess first, like, what's that? Do you know roughly like what percentage of maybe you mentioned this earlier, but of Canada performing arts organizations are government from government funding? I can't remember the exact figure. It's in this book, but I'm not going to waste the viewer's time in flipping through it to, to, to give you the figure, but it's it's higher than America, lower than the EU. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, you said that. Basically, that's that's that that's that's what I remember, but I don't have the exact figure and I'm you know, I can I can look it up and post a comment under the video later on. Yeah. I'll give you a quotation and a page number if somebody's interested. Yeah. Um but so yeah, so what's your what's your thinking on government funding in in um in the in the and how the performing arts can thrive, you know, in its in its success. Well, to me, the principle is is very basic. I don't think a government has any place in funding the arts. Mm. I don't see a justification for that on economic grounds, on moral and cultural grounds. I I I don't think that's what the government should be doing. Mm -hmm. I go back. That you go take hot take on this before uh, on this segment, <laughs> but this is. But I, I honestly do want to hear your position. Sorry, so I'm already interrupt you. I was just trying to make a joke. No, no, no. Sorry about that. Um, if you go back to the little booklet in your country called the Constitution, nor does it say anything about the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, mm. or we need to support uh, the, the 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 you know new music compositions by local. None of that is in the constitution. Uh, I can, you know, I can go into the history of government funding of, of, of the arts and kind of historically what happened, but that's perhaps too boring. But it, I, it, there's there's no justification, and we can get into the philosophical argument for that. Yeah. But economically, what that creates, it creates a distortion in the market for classical music. I really believe one of the main reasons why we're in such a mess uh, in the sector of classical music is because government funding distorts the market. It distorts your perception of supply and your perception of demand. It creates oversupply and uh, it just complete, completely floods the market. Mm -hmm. If you have so many symphony orchestras sur surviving, a lot of them because of government support, you might get the idea as a, as a violin student that, oh, there's so much work out there. Uh, no, there isn't, and they're always struggling, and they're always they have razor thin margins. Basically, right. and that ratio so, is much lower than than you mentioned. Probably if you uh, government funding. Yes. So going back to supply and demand, yeah. if you cut off, if you took away government funding, then you will get the true market figures for supply and demand in classical music. Right now, whatever figures we're talking about, um, they're distorted. Because you have the influence of the government creating creating an, an unrealistic market. You don't know what's true. Why doesn't the government support Apple in creating computers? Hmm. Well, there's no need to because they make plenty of money on their own, right? Uh, imagine if, 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 if the government decided to subsidize Apple. What would happen? It, it would completely create a distortion. And the marketing people, they wouldn't know, well, what's... What's the real demand for our product? Mm -hmm. Because you don't know. Because you've got, you've got this, you know, little ivy, 
line going, you got the IV tube from from DC in your case and from Ottawa in our case, mm. distorting the, the 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 truth of the matter. Mm. That's that's the kind of the economic argument against government support of the arts. Yeah, uh, particularly in Canada, there's this yeah, there's the system where the Canada Arts Council, it's a horrible institution, the the way grants are allocated is by um, peer committees, basically. So do you, do you want to talk about, you know, in-group preference and giving grants to your buddies and to and to music that you think should be funded? Uh, you know, that's how it happens in Canada. You have a bunch of people, uh, you know, the adjudicators or whatever on the Canada Arts Council, and they get to decide who gets the money. Hmm. So they get to destroy the market and they get to decide what kind of art form gets funded by the government. Well, who give, who gave them that right? Yeah. God, fascinating. Yeah, it's the same same idea in America, the national, the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts. Can't remember when it was created, but but you know, a bunch of government bureaucrats deciding who gets how much money. Why? Yeah. It is something, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I, I hesitate to rely on government support so much. You know, and we get a few grants um because they're available and uh, so we're gonna try for them. But you know, I, I I find it to be more uh, a more important uh, marker in our history where we can survive solely on tickets alone because that's I f I find more indicative of the a true you know a, a clear accurate um, value and demand and yes demand. oh yeah um, but yeah uh, yeah that's that's very interesting I I you're right because then. Then the the true figures are not distorted. If you have a grant coming in, you don't know. Can you survive on ticket on ticket sales? Or I'm so happy to hear that you can. You go, great. I mean, there's real demand. You've either created the demand or you filled the niche with your ensemble, and that's that's the way it should be. Nobody's kind of mandating that there should be 30% of Josquin, 45% Bach. It, <laughs> no, it's it's what people want to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here, here's let's. Let me just play devil's advocate for a minute. Yes. But Costa, um, we need to fund classical music because that's it's a cultural institution. It's our cultural backbone. It's good for society. It's a uh, There's a term in economics called it's a public good with positive externalities. It's um, um, There's an educational component. You know, we, that's why we need to fund classical music. Um, well, my... <laughs> A very good friend of mine makes that argument, and I say, he, he's not a musician, he's an engineer, actually. And I go, dude, when was the last time you went to the symphony orchestra? Uh, well, when you played there a couple of years ago? Like, yeah, you only came because I was playing with a, with a Vancouver symphony. We're doing St. Saint John Passion. I'm like, have you been outside of me playing? Well, not really. I'm like, so what is it all this spouting off about we need to preserve these institutions? I'm like, you're an engineer. You make a lot of money, yeah. right? Open your wallet and vote with it. Just, uh, you know, you should practice what you preach. Right, right. If, if to him it's so important to preserve these institutions of, of orchestras, I'm not saying it's not important to preserve them, but if that's where his mouth is, well, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. We go, well, well, well why should it, you know, they, they get government support? <laughs> I say, well, yeah, then there's another thing government support de-incentivizes private charity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They go, well, why should I donate to the symphony orchestra? They're getting, you know, they're on the dollar anyway. Yeah, yeah. So people have these kind of almost hypocritical 
ways of talking about symphony orchestras. We should support these institutions. There, you know, the children and it's our cultural heritage, blah, blah. They've never been to the orchestra. They've never, they don't have subscription tickets. Couldn't even tell you where the theater is, but they spout off the, oh yeah, it's good for government support. Oh yeah, my taxes should go there. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, yeah. I've never understood that behavior. Interesting. Yeah. I, I want to slightly switch to something we touched on earlier. Um, so one of the one of the one of the problems I see at the moment, especially in COVID, is that um, musicians and artists are still still creating content and still making stuff, uh, posting stuff. And I'm trying to figure out a way how that can be monetized. I mean, I know traditionally I've, I've thought of this stuff as like a marketing cost, and you know this is just part of um, brand development. But I think of platforms like Netflix. And like publications like the New York Times, and do you think it's possible to create? Oh well, I should say I had this idea of creating a platform like that, where I would post new music. Not, I mean, not new like uh, or I should say original content mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. from artists, and then basically at some point they would start hitting paywalls, and then they would have to pay to um pay like a monthly fee that we could use to help that we would could use to compensate artists for their digital content very much like a netflix model um, oh, yeah. and i guess i'm wondering have you thought about that and do you think what do you think about a model like that um do you think it would be successful and beyond it's since it's sort of my idea don't feel like you need to uh uh go easy on it but um i want to hear i want to hear your your thoughts on that uh, well, it's it's a great idea. Um, what would you call a sort of on-demand content? Yeah, that that sort of sub sub subscription service. Basically, I I love Patreon. Just the idea of it. It's to me, there's something even philosophical. There's something so brilliant about it. Yeah, uh, I, I I really like the idea. And by the way, if you if you enjoy the stuff coming out of my mouth, Patreon.com/slash Uncle Costa. Yeah, my or this choir nerd, you should support both, really, because mm -hmm. we don't get any government grants for you do for what we do. We rely solely on your very generous hearts and wallets. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We are talking about money and economics, so there you go. There's a plug. Yeah. Um, um, you see, the you got to think of the of the of the supply chain. Let's put it in economic terms. Yeah. Supply chain meaning you're the producer, or um, you know, an artist is the producer of the content. Then you have this delivery mechanism, which is the platform you mentioned, or YouTube, Patreon. And then you have the consumer of the good on the other side. That's your basic supply chain. If you're giving a concert, all three happen at the same time because it's live music. Mm -hmm. So you got to think about your supply chain. So, so is it, but is it a question of the business model or is it a question of the, is it the message or is it the medium? To me, again, it comes down to it comes down to supply and demand. What is it that people want to listen to? What is it that they're willing to pay for? No, uh, absolutely. Sorry, keep finish your. Go ahead, finish your thought. No, no, no. Um, if if you can you can package things in in very kind of creative ways, and you can market the life out of it. But if people don't want to buy it, you're still back to square one. You've never figured out that first step. Do is anybody actually willing to pay for this? Yeah, if it's very hard, there's another kind of cliche saying economics, it's very hard 
to charge for something that you can get for free. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can get all of Beethoven online by the best pianist the world has ever seen, why would I pay a premium monthly subscription price on Patreon to hear it from somebody? Right. Well, so let, let, let me let me let me flesh out the idea. So, yep. There are a few things uh, I'm trying. I would be trying to leverage here. So, mm-hmm. since everyone's mostly on on social media somehow. Um, that is how people consume their news and other things. And there is the most attraction we get when we post something are from friends and family, you know, like, or especially these virtual car videos at the moment, you know, yeah. you, you share that and they're everyone and, and their family is sharing it and you get so much reach. Actually, you get so much more exposure than you would normally get, you know, out of a live performance. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what would happen if, say, somehow, suddenly they hit a paywall? Um, would they, I'm sure many of them would just, you know, ignore and just skip. But maybe because th- there is actually a growing um, sort of communal sentiment of supporting like local artists and stuff. And maybe out of that, out of that concern, they would, because they know, you know the focus on this music video, say, is a local choir mm-hmm. and you know this totally brand new video maybe it's of music that's been done before a million times but it has these people in it and by supporting it's sort of like appealing to the partly to their generous hearts in a way mm-hmm. and you know at some point they can just rely you know you, the way you package this product is important but you know they just hit a paywall and eventually they subscribe something small like you know like the patreon model five bucks a month and then yeah. you can always get these sort of digests of local groups performing you know so it's something new uh, or, or some new video that's just been made so I, I and then scribe i was thinking scribe records would do this in turn would um use some of that revenue to pay for more content pay artists for more content i guess mm-hmm. i'm curious now, sort of now, you know, have more of the details of the idea. Do you? What do you think about that? I do like the emphasis on on the communal aspect. Mm-hmm. Let's say, oh, you know, all these musicians, or this week we're featuring musicians from, I don't know, Everett or Tacoma or something like that, and you know, the local, they'll all live there, and and here's something they recorded. So if you want to support local music, uh, I. I am kind of seeing that in Canada as well. This, you know, this kind of return to like the local farmers market kind of thing, and yeah. you know, oh, you know, screw the big chains. There's you know, little local store that they sell the same stuff. Maybe it's a buck more because of our margins, but you know, you should support that little lady with her with her little business. I, I, I am kind of seeing trends of that. I, I don't have any figures on that, but but yeah. it's kind of the community sense I'm getting, which is it, it's so lovely, and I, I and I love that. So your idea to me kind of seems to kind of belong in that same circle of ideas that, you know, support local, uh, not, you know, anything international, but but support local artists as well. And I I do like that idea. And it's, it, this loops back to branding and marketing. Mm-hmm. How do you, okay, let's say they're doing, I don't know, jazz standards or, you know, something, something kind of overdone as, you know, like, like a jazz standard. But the way they're doing it is they're, you know, there may be local college students or something. All of that distinguishes you from from everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier, I was thinking about this, and I, I I love I love Elgar Edward Elgar, yeah. and yesterday I was I'm 
his cello concerto is one of my all-time favorite pieces of music. Yesterday, I heard a performance by Sheku Kane Mason, who is a um, young black cellist who performed at the wedding of, what's her name? Um, um, uh, not Will and Kate, but the, the younger ones. Oh. Harry and uh, Megan. Megan. <laughs> Surely, how much I don't care about the royals and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Megan Markle and Harry, right? Sorry about that. Um, and uh, Sheku Kane Mason was this this uh, young black cellist. He's an incredible performer. That he was invited at their wedding and he did some Bach and some things. And his career kind of took off from then. Now, and another example would be the classical pianist Yuja Wang, who's got these stunning seven foot long legs. Oh. Like every YouTube video of her, she you know she's got the little skirt and and the high heels and these beautiful long legs. You go, oh, okay, like what, what am I supposed to be listening or watching? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for her, that's her way to kind of stand out. Hmm. I'm not saying it's a gimmick. It's not a shtick. It's it's it, her her image, her artistic image. That's how she stands out. Yeah. Um, Sheku Kana Mason. Maybe it's the fact that he's black. Maybe it's the fact that there aren't that many, you know. Uh, black cello soloists. He's a stunning musician. Oh, no doubt. And he's very young and yeah. great kind of musical imagination. It's beautiful to listen. It was a recording of the BBC Proms, Elga Concerto. Mm. So, but maybe that's his angle. It's, you know, that mm. he's kind of underrepresented in that field. Right. So maybe the fact that local musicians, to circle back, yeah. performing music that people want to hear, maybe that will be a selling point. Meaning that why should we pay all these international touring artists where we can support local musicians who live in our own neighborhood? Yeah, it's it's not a bad idea. I don't I don't know what might work, but but the principle to me is 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 the same. It's how do you stick out? Yeah, I mean, and you know the Patreon model, I I, I echo the same um, sentiments. It is so interesting and and so useful actually. Um, this everybody you know a lot of people paying just a little bit of money. And supporting something meaningful to them, I think, is has got to be the future. I mean, we, yeah, and that's what I imagine with this scribe model as well. There, there is this problem, you know, and, and it's only getting worse. Where because so much of what our branding life is online, that we, you know, for Radiance, we have a social media calendar and a group of volunteer, you know, few group of four or five people on our board. They're on this kind of social media committee, and they're responsible for generating content. And you know, this stuff is is becoming more and more expensive. And there's just got to be a way to try to correct for this in some way. I mean, I'm, you know, by using the our current market conditions, you know, and by using, say, you know, the, the angle of supporting local local artists and their digital content. And mm. so, I guess. Well, I'll try to roll this out someday, and uh, I suppose yeah. maybe well, we should have a talk like in a year or so to see how, how that experiment uh, sure. comes. I'd love to. Love to. Um, but is there anything we should touch on before we before we wrap this up? I'm trying to think, unless um, I haven't checked the comment section. If any of our viewers, yeah, it's are still with us, unlikely. Give <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 yeah, just a just Eric. But um, mm -hmm, if you're mm -hmm. tuning in, I, I want to thank you for for giving us a listen, and and you know, you feel free to 
ask a question in the comment even after the broadcast and and we'll try to get to that and we'll also post some of these books um that you've did you just cite one book or did you do, do you just have one book or was it two? two I, have, I have two different ones and to me they're the best because they're really packed with graphs and charts and statistics and yeah they're not the easiest to read because they're written by economists but it can flip through and have a look at the charts and it's it's very recent data it's the most recent data that i can get my hands on god this has been such an interesting conversation i mean i i really think i'll have to like listen to this again actually <laughs> because there's some amazing content yeah. like the matthew effect and uh and um, and how that how that relates to um, the music industry and and creating opportunities and I'm and that's what I'm I'm in the business of doing that you know just trying yeah. to create meaningful opportunities for musicians uh, particularly singers mm -hmm. particularly singers um, locally and um, but uh, and I think mm. this is an interesting um, conversation for that and a way to to way to look at at that. Uh, I hope so. I, I really hope somebody that watches it out there gets gets something out of this. And really, my the whole point of me starting a podcast and and with with great pleasure, of which I'm very grateful, appearing on yours, is to hopefully give some value to people and and be able to 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 bring a little clarity to the problems they might be having. Yeah. And I think this is this is probably the right way to look at it. You mentioned. And I'll, I'll sort of close with this. You, you had, uh, you know, you mentioned about the social media team and how, you know, how they're responsible for generating content and pushing things out. There is a, a, another brilliant book that comes to mind, How to Win Friends and Influence People in the Digital Age. Mm. It's a it's a rewritten version of uh, Dale Carnegie's classic book from the from the 1936. It was written. This one was written in, in the in the 20 teens. So I, I just finished a couple of months ago. And, the author kind of says that in the digital age that we're living in, all you're getting is this constant barrage of images and 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 clickbait and buy this, get this, look at our product, this is flashy, this is cheap, this is on sale, wow, coupons, yeah. uh, and it, it's it's going at it like digital marketing to 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 me. What I see philosophically is backwards, particularly in the art sector. What what me and you do. Uh, the the principle that should be guiding our marketing efforts should be again supply and demand i'm trying to loop all the way back yeah, yeah that's good <laughs> loop it all the way back supply and demand um not what i want to do what i want to sell what i want to push a service or a product but what is it that you need yeah as, as the as the consumer how can i help you what do you what is a need that I can fulfill? What is a demand that you have? Mm -hmm. What can I do for you? Um, look at look at the creator of Patreon. Well, you know, he read a bit of history. Oh, the patronage system in Europe. You know, we know about that. We studied history. You know, oh, how can you adapt that to the digital digital age? And there you go. You have Patreon. So, but he was thinking. He wasn't thinking. In my, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking, but <laughs> he he created a product. What's his name? Jack Conti, is it? The guy that yeah, the I, I'm sorry, just I don't know. But <laughs> uh, they have a band called Pomplamoose, and and he's one of the singers. I, th I think it was Jack Conti. If I'm mistaken, I'll probably be corrected in the comments below. <laughs> but he was thinking of the need that him as a musician, as a band member, had, which is how to create this sort of direct interaction with your fans and how can they support you financially. And what can you give back? There's the uh, the reward system, all the different tiers in Patreon. So 
to me, that's the secret of marketing, well, anything really in the digital age, but particularly uh, um, an artistic product like ours. Mm -hmm. What is it? What value can I provide to others? And what need do they have that I can fulfill? Yeah. Well, great. Well, this has been a really rich conversation, Costa. I'm so happy you were able to jump on this podcast with me. And uh, I hope everyone will check out your your Patreon page and and support you as well. Um, this is a, a great way to look and to evaluate the value of what we do in music and to think about it um, in a different way, you know, in a more honest way, in fact, in some ways. So, yes. And, and as, as a disclaimer, I'm not partial to Taylor Swift or Pavarotti. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be objective. I'm not, I have my own kind of weird musical preferences. We haven't talked about any of that. It's not kind of my opinions. And I would like to kind of see legislation that, that reflects that. No, no, no. It's, yeah. it's what the numbers show. It has nothing to do with my own personal feelings about it. Yeah. So, you know, there's no value judgment. Is classical music better than Taylor Swift? That's not the question. Yeah, yeah. It's not what we're talking about. We never discussed artistic merit. But um, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. If anybody's interested in more kind of my line of thinking about music and the arts, the channel is youtube.com slash Uncle Costa and patreon.com slash Uncle Costa. I'm on Twitter as well. Great. Thank you, Costa. Until next time. Thank you so much. We should do it again. That was a lot of fun, man. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.